Welcome to the Life Curation Podcast. I'm your host, Andrina Tisi. Together, we will explore thoughts, inspirations, and conversations that feed our soul, spark the mind, and nourish the body. Thank you so much for being here to learn and grow and for walking this journey called life with me. Welcome to another episode of the Life Curation Podcast. Super happy as always that you're here, whether it's your first time or you've been here numerous times. Thank you so much. And before we dive into today's episode with this very special guest, I am happy to announce that in March I am holding a long weekend retreat in the Swiss mountains and there are still a few beds and mats available so take a look at the link is in the show notes as well I'm super stoked that after two years the vision board workshop is back in Zurich also in March and in the last two years I really manifested a whole lot and if you've been following me on social media you have witnessed a little bit of that <laughs> and in that workshop I'm thrilled to share all the different tools um, that I practice and that help me beyond the vision board. <laughs> the links to that is also in the show notes. Now, this summer I attended the Generative Trance Workshop in Abano, Italy with Stephen Gilligan. And I'm so, so honored and happy to have him as my guest today. Stephen is a psychotherapist, an author, a workshop leader, a storyteller, and transformation specialist. And he says that from a very young age, he was astonished and amazed that the words people spoke often didn't match what he felt and saw in them. So he knew from early on that psychotherapy was his calling. And he then went to Stanford University and earned his PhD in research psychology. And from there, he has been practicing, writing, teaching as a psychotherapist and coach. And he's always looking for ways to absorb the countless contradictions and struggles of consciousness into generative integration. And into exactly that, we dive deep into our conversation today. So in this conversation, like I said, Stephen is going really deep with his knowledge and his wisdom. And you might want to listen to this conversation more than once <laughs> to really get all of it. Um, yeah, I wish you lots of inspiration, lots of insights and fun and joy. Thank you for being here.
Well, welcome to the Life Creation Podcast, Stephen. My pleasure. Thank you My pleasure. so much for being here. Yeah. And I had the huge honor and pleasure to be in Opano with you. <laughs> yeah. And um, it was really an amazing week for me and so and on so many different levels. So I'm super excited um, to have this opportunity to speak to you and yeah. to share what you have what you have to share really <laughs> with with the audience of, of my podcast. So I really appreciate your your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. So um the kind of the theme or the topic of um that week in Opano was generative trance. And I mean I know your work okay. is is that but also more and we'll dive into a little bit different things. Um, but just to start with, and I know you're a, a young grandfather. <laughs> so um, how old is your granddaughter now? Uh, River is the, my granddaughter, and River is about seven and a half months, and they, they live here on my property. Wow. Uh, my old office is in the front of the, of the property. Uh, I turned over to my, my daughter and her husband, my son-in-law, and River. Nice. So I get to see her every day. That's beautiful. So it must be yeah. amazing to see her grow. It's amazing. It really, uh, you know, it's one of the most interesting, amazing things I've ever experienced in my life. Very touching, beautiful. So how would you, or maybe you have already, <laughs> explained generative trance to her? Um, You know, it's she, at seven and a half months, I don't think, <laughs> you're doing much explaining you're just doing connection yes so i i think maybe that question could be more properly addressed by sort of inverting it and say what what does river what does an eight eight month old mm -hmm. baby teach you about generative trance teach us big kids Beautiful. about generative trance um so you know the thing about i mean i i had a there was a one of the great founders of family therapy, Carl Whitaker, who mm -hmm. was like one of Erickson's contemporaries, uh, was, was the guy that I thought matched Milton Erickson's creativity. And he used to say that unconditional love is impossible after two years old. Wow. And I used to fight him on it. You know, I thought, oh, no, you know. But I, I have come, you know, it's one of those statements that you hear you know, that you contemplate over many, many years, and then you realize, yeah, I think he's right. So the thing about eight-month-olds is they don't have any secondary consciousness. Yeah. And so everything is very, very pure. Mm -hmm. Everything is, is very, very much just present. So that's what we're looking to do in Generative Trance, this unbounded curiosity that is not being blocked out by a conceptual level. Mm -hmm. um, this sense of of relentless experimentation. Yeah. The sense of play. Yeah. The sense of really being guided by um, just organismic rhythms. You know, and even though you know the the grown-ups in River's life are responsible for 
for being able to to respond to those rhythms. But she lets you know, you know, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I I, mm-hmm. I need connection, I want to do this, and, and so forth. And and that's what we're looking to reactivate or uh, reprioritize in genitive trance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could say it in in another way, you know, that human beings um, are creating. We're all creating our reality. But we have uh, upstairs. We have these two very very different brains. We have a right brain, which is basically nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And people like Ian McGilchrist, the Oxford neuroscientist, has said that's the primary brain. Yeah, that's where. That's the connection to life. But it has no words. It doesn't have language, logic, or linearity. Uh, And that is what we might call the creative unconscious. And and then, you know, over time, I presume, you know, and River gets like, especially about five or six, the brains are pretty well differentiated. And so you get that other brain which is basically a conceptual or a virtual or primarily a verbal brain mm-hmm. that is secondary to the creative consciousness of the right brain. So trance, uh, particularly genitive trance, is is reactivating that sort of base of, of the creative unbroken wholeness of the nonverbal intelligence and, and trying to make use of it in in positive ways yeah and i mean that's a, a big question and i mean we spend um, an entire yeah. an entire um week on it but you know how can we access it you know we yeah. from what i what you're saying is like we we have it and then we kind of I don't know if lose is the right word, but it's just kind of... Um, we do lose it. Well, we do lose it, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I should say, you know, one of the interesting things that I was just mention- mentioning, this Oxford neuroscientist, uh, Ian McGochris, who I think is doing extraordinary work. And he's sort of revisiting a lot of the the, the neuropsychology of the two brains. Yes. And... One one of the things he says is the left brain, which is secondary, yeah. it has these very pale images, virtual representations, and it and it thinks it's the world. Yes. <laughs> but maybe more, even a more limiting way, it cannot feel the body directly. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That, that the, you have to go through the right brain in order to feel the body. So... You know, all of our conditioning and our education and all of our institutions are fostering this increasing isolation into the virtual conceptual left brain, and it's the the, the consequences are mounting. Absolutely, and it's and it's so much what you what you've already said, and also during that week with you, reminded me of somatic experiencing that I'm currently in training with. And it's so much right. also well, you said yeah. about the, cousin. Yes, exactly. What you also said about the curiosity and the the play and the rhythm. Like um yeah. 
you know yeah. approaching trauma work and or like whatever or sensations um or images whatever it is with curiosity that what comes up and mm-hmm. also noticing the the somatic rhythm like the you know the the vibrations whatever the whatever comes up and and trusting the body that's right that's right but by the way uh you're mentioning somatic experiencing. Peter Levine is a neighbor of mine. I can almost oh, really? see his house from here. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh my God, that's so exciting! <laughs> we're we're in this little beach town up the, the on the coast of uh, up up from San Diego, Encinitas. Yeah. Okay. So we grow surfers and poinsettia flowers and yoga studios. Yes. Uh, and Peter lives right right on the overlooking on the cliff overlooking the ocean wow so we, we bump into each other in the grocery store <laughs> now <and again. laughs> how cool is that <laughs> yeah so that sense and and to me that's one of the the beautiful legacies of milton erickson mm-hmm. uh this sense of um really tuning into um the rhythms and the resonance and all the nonverbal creative patterns of the organism yeah and very importantly for any of the therapeutic work to be tracking and asking the organismic pattern to be the primary guide in the work and and that's the part of uh peter's work uh that's now sort of growing in, in in a number of related areas of trauma that I think is in some ways the most radical and the most helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I i mean, I know it for myself, if I'm, you know, not connected to myself, I'm also not connected to my body. Yeah, it's, that's the starting point. Right. And you also talk about the, the three mind intelligence. Um, so like somatic heart and mind. Is that what, what it, it refers to, right? Uh, not quite. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been working professionally for 45 years. So yes. there's, a, there's a few different versions here and there. Okay. But, sure. but the three the three minds uh, in those models are uh, head verbal mind, uh, body somatic mind, and relational community mind. Okay. And I say those, those are like the three major influences is that what's being said upstairs, that's the social, cognitive, verbal avatar. So it's not just your voice, but it's the vo- the social voice. It's, it's the, you know, the parental interjects, all, all of that. The body is a, is a totally different language and logic and and consciousness. And as I said, you know, in, in our contemporary um, uh, cultures, we we pretty much suppress it and and regard it as an idiot or as a as a dumbass that needs to be pushed around. Uh, and then, thirdly, very importantly, the relationship communities that you carry that are actually right there but also we carry in our heads mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know so so when you say this is who i am or this is what i want what's the inner chorus of people that you're holding that in and what do they say not only verbally what do they say with their eyes what do they say you know so forth so with things like trauma 
where, where trauma is becoming a major problem, it's not the trauma itself. It's that the trauma has gotten neuromuscularly locked. Mm-hmm. So you have these same things over and over. And one of the, the worst curses of a trauma is you get this voice, um, you should be treated poorly, or your your body doesn't need respect, or uh, you deserve to be violated, uh, uh, and so forth. And and those become sort of your, your guiding uh, transinductions, if you will, that give rise to all of the sequelae of uh, PTSD. Yeah. Where, you know, it's like, well, I'm not taking care of my body. I'm continuing to get into intimacy relationships that are damaging. I have issues with food or alcohol. I can't trust human beings. So I try to get that warmth and relaxation from drugs or alcohol or food or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think those are all coming from this locked idea that can come from trauma, which is your body deserves to be abused Mm -hmm. and how can we kind of change that trance right or change that change that law yeah yeah. um well you know one of the the ideas in trauma these days i think is a good one is that ptsd is frozen processing it's Mm -hmm. it's non-metabolized experience that's what the emdr people would say Mm-hmm. And what you know what that means is is an experience you know enters the nervous system, and it moves through this series of steps and this series of languages for it to complete itself. And at, at that point, it's a, something that's happened in your life, yeah. you know, and you have a relationship to it. But at any point in the processing processing of that experience, you can go into lockdown. And w- when you go into lockdown, that means that that the experience is, is frozen in your mind-body. So that's what I think PTSD is. It's a frozen experience that keeps activating in an attempt to for healing. Mm-hmm. But every time the experience that had to be dissociated from you know, and I always say to people, when you're in a trauma, dissociation is an act of self-love. Yeah. You know, because trauma, you'd say, is defined by this physiological shock that uh, in in a relationship that's so threatening that you didn't have the resources. It's to, a form of protection, to... yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had to go away. And, and that locks down everything. So in order to integrate it and to move beyond the drama, you have to relax in some way. Mm-hmm. But people, you know, as soon as somebody carrying trauma feels relaxation, they start to panic. Exactly. Because they feel, oh, shit, here we go again. Here we go again. And so you have to have a good connection with somebody else, generally. That's what the therapeutic connection is all about. And then the way that you're 
connecting to the person is more like how I would talk to my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And I I don't mean in an and I don't mean to infantilize to you know to, to uh, somebody or the way I talk to uh, my dog who is right here. Um, it's the way, and this is something I learned from Erickson, the way your eyes and your voice touches the resonance in the body. Mm-hmm. Okay. As you need that sort of kind-hearted resonance to begin to relax. Okay. So that's the first connection, and then the the communication becomes more non-verbally yeah. primary. And then very importantly, and this is, I think, what somatic experiencing is really good at, you realize that the organism has its own way of healing. And so it it, it can open a door for... You don't know exactly how long, but it could be two seconds. It could be five seconds. And so you see, okay, I open just a little bit, and then I have to close back. My body has to close back down. If you're not sensitive to that, you're re-traumatizing the person. Because you say, okay, open up. And they open up, and then their organism starts to pull back. And if you're still in open up while the organism is pulling back, you're basically repeating the trauma. You know, my my body wasn't respected. My body wasn't listened to. And and so that that sense of of feeling how to touch positive places, very importantly, how long you can stay there before you respect the need to shut down and to get more distance. Um, so that's that's a big chunk. The other chunk, if you if you look at um I may have been talking about this in Italy uh last summer. There there's a really helpful um meta-analysis of lots and lots of different trauma studies that look at a couple things. One is of the people who experienced by a very by a very severe definition of trauma that would include physiological shock, how many of those people develop PTSD? Mm. And having, you know, when I was a psychotherapist with a full-time practice for many years, my two main populations were couples and, and trauma survivors. Okay. So I was a little surprised to hear uh, it's only about one in five or one in four. Wow. So so 75% of people get knocked down. They get whacked really hard. They will remember it, I'm sure, for the rest of their life as probably the worst thing that ever happened to them. But after a while, they find a way to get back up and reclaim their life. About 25% stay down, and that's what we would call PTSD. They're, they're caught in the experience, and it's just repeating itself in many ways. So that's one really interesting um, d- data from that large meta-analysis. The second is the people who are recovering, what are, what are, what's happening differently from them 
than from the people who are staying locked in PTSD. And that I think that tells us a lot about what we can do therapeutically. If you look at the past, um, people who have some positive early bonding experiences when they're young, you know, like my granddaughter's age. Yes, yes. Um, they recover faster because yes. they have in their system, I know there are people that love me and care about me. It's a different resilience, right? It's a That's exactly it. It's mm -hmm. a different resilience. And the previous trusting, positive experiences, a bonding, uh, give you a stronger resilience. And even if, like, what's interesting about some of those studies, if your parents or your grandparents went through severe trauma, like war, for example, or, you know, they had to escape their country, political, whatever, that uh, really breaks your bonding capacity mm -hmm. and and that reduce that reduces the likelihood of of resilience. Secondly, you're in the present, the degree of social connection, positive social connections that you have. So friends or family that re really are tuned in and love you and insist on staying connected with you. And yeah, it makes sense if if I'm traumatized and I, I think I just want to stay home, I don't want to go out, but there's a big family birthday party or, you know, there's a, a, a baptism or you go to your um, grandchild's uh, football game and everybody's on the sideline and 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 your grandchild scores a goal and you know th those are the moving out of the trauma uh, field and back into the healthy healing field mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so anything that you can do that gets somebody back into some positive experiences of, of human and embodied connection that will help your healing. Yeah, I think it's it comes to mind the, the human animal. And I, you know, I I find it really interesting. I mean, because we are, you know, we, we're not alone a lone animal, right? We like to be in, in community and we, we need that. And I think also what oh, we've right. experienced over the last three years or two and a half years right you're right you're you right. know hasn't um made all of that easier um it's made it a lot harder exactly and then suddenly also connection becomes dangerous and then we have a whole other level of um of trauma or of trance or and that needs to needs to heal now as well right and i think that's that's for on a collective level that's a huge topic yeah you're really touching on i think the core and you know yeah we're mammals first and foremost our 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 roots our base are mammalian and ma mammals need, need each other i mean it's sort of funny i you know we i we're we're always talking about my grandchild and you know my my daughter says she's so social. I said, yes. she's <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
she just loves to like see her family and her grandparents and her aunt and she loves to like you know be in their company and do show now now she's you know look at me i can stand and um but we we are um not whole we're only a little fragment as individuals so that's why I say that that field mind where, where we're talking about the cognitive, the somatic, and the field. Yes. Because because with, without our our contextual community, we are we're just little fragments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You also mentioned your dog, and I I have a dog too, and she's lying next to me as well, and I. I it's so interesting to watch you know that that animal and how she processes things right when she get like I, I notice of course the shaking a lot right like she sees a cat and gets like too excited and of course then like like a minute later she comes down a little bit and she shakes shakes it off in a way right and she and it, yeah. yeah and we fun learned that yeah, and I think partly it's like developmentally, we're now much more capable of not shaking it off. Yeah. I mean, now I I remember, you know, I'm sort of harking back as I with my granddaughter as my daughter grew up in this house. She's 30 years old, and I I remember she had such trouble sleeping, mm -hmm. and every now and again I'd sort of lose my temper and tell her just go to sleep, and I'd feel so guilty. Yeah. And then I was sure when I came in the next morning that she'd still be brooding about it, which is what people do in my Irish family. <laughs> and, and within five minutes, she's through it. Yeah. So that, as you say, that that shaking it out, which you know is one of the things that P Peter talks about, and and he really, I think, did some really good work in situating trauma in terms of looking at things like uh, a animals in, in the wild who get attacked mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and seeing that how animals in the wild go into that sort of trauma trance yeah. to play dead and all the sort of peculiar physiology on, on the outside, nothing's moving, but on the inside there's, there's very, amplified uh high physiology and and then when the danger removed and this is what i meant by the relaxation it's only when they go into relaxation that they're able to reorganize the system mm -hmm. yeah but what you get in trauma is people get terrified that relaxation in their body means that here comes the trauma again yeah, it's dangerous. Relaxation is dangerous. It's dangerous. And the, body is, and the body is dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. It's, it's just, I don't know if you'd call it a re-education, but we really, you know, I, one of Einstein's questions was, you know, one of the most important questions that in, in the world is, is the universe friendly? Yeah. And how we answer that question sort of 
a lot follows from that. So is your body friendly? Yeah, that's um, a that's a good question. I mean, I think yeah. it, it it gives gives a lot of insights to see what what pops up for somebody, right? Yeah, it's a real learning experience, and mm-hmm. and part of that is you know, uh, speaking of other great Swiss people, uh, <laughs> Carl Jung. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes of his was, "The first half of your life belongs to other people." Mm. So it's other. It's what other people are telling you, and what other people are saying. That's that's sort of your your primary c- cognitive mind. Mm-hmm. And he said, "The second half of your life belongs to you." So you you may have been taught you know, in your family, implicitly, explicitly. I mean, I grew up very, I went to all Catholic schools and very, you know, very Catholic. And the messages that I got about the body, you Mm -hmm. know, were like guilt and, you know, repression and, and all that. So it's taken, I'm still not done, but it's taken quite a journey to say that, that, it's my voice that is closest to my body. Yeah. And I am really committed to letting my body, just to let everybody know is that life can be trusted as long as, as, long as you are trusting your body and have that sort of attentiveness to know what your body needs at any given point in time. Yeah, and I think... There we're kind of coming back to the curiosity and also the word befriending comes into me. And I think what you always, I mean, in, in, we did a lot of beautiful exercises in Abanon. There was always this aspect of welcoming what's here. That's right. Right? That's right. Yeah. And again, I mean, if we, we were to hearken back to you shouldn't you shouldn't talk to me about my granddaughter too much because everything becomes about my granddaughter. That's okay. I think it's but, beautiful. <laughs> but at that age, it's like that's that's really the primary thing we're we're looking to do is welcome. And yeah. she's 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 got no capacity to be plotting or planning or or misrepresenting herself. So everything she's saying and doing it is just straight pure communication yeah and and so that way of of welcoming is is crucial it's always like the first step it's the first step welcome yeah because i also think like so often we certain feelings or certain sensations or thoughts we we don't want we want to push it away because maybe they're uncomfortable or again they're scary and or maybe we feel shame around it, whatever it is. And just by that, just even by this intention or this word of welcome. Yeah. It can soften. I, you know, it can soften. Already, I mean, it can really soften, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. As soon as we reject something in our experience, that's the first step in creating a symptom. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So p- people say, "Well, are what's the alternative?" And often people think, "Well, alternative is just to let it overwhelm me, and and let it sort of take away 
you know, my self-presence and so forth. But really what we're, I think, in, in any sort of mature sense is to cultivate this capacity for mindfulness or centering so that we can notice things as they are and as they arise in our body. We can touch them with kindness and curiosity, but that mindfulness gives them a, a place to be held. Yeah. Not like a box, but sort of like a, a quivering uh, space in, in our center mm-hmm. so that it's a part of us, but it's not all of us. And and that then allows us to begin to have a curious, skillful relationship to whatever has come up. And it's that that shifts a seemingly negative experience into a positive resource. And I think what you did just said, it's part of us, but it's not all of us, right? It's, I can be afraid, but I can also be excited. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. Right, I can I can have a trauma, but it's not it's not it doesn't have to be all of me or you know what I mean. It's it's there's different aspects of it. And I think just seeing that that it's part of me, but it's not all of me, gives me then also um, opportunity and potential or a sense that that there is possibility of healing and transformation. That's that's it. Um, that's to me what the generative trance work is about, you know, which is going beneath the conceptual or the 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 muscular experience that, that the ego is holding, releasing and relaxing the body and opening up, welcoming first uh, n- non-negative, non the non-traumatic, you know. So one of the questions that we pursued it in the training is when you need to really connect with yourself, what really works well for you. Yes, exactly. You know, and so for one person, it might be, oh, I walk in the mountains or it might be, I listen to music or it might be that I go for a walk or it might be that I meditate or it might be that I cook or it might be that I garden. And what, what we do in the trance work and this is the natural transfer of Milton Erickson, mm-hmm. is that we we re, we reactivate that experience in the nervous system. Yeah. And so now that's your base. And if we get two or three of them, now you're in this field where you've got lots of different resources. And, you know, sometimes, I don't know if we did in Habano, this little... My mind uh, experiment, thought thought experiment of imagining yourself out in the forest and you come to a place and, and on the left side is a house that says that the house of no resources mm-hmm. and on the right side, the house of resources. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you tune into a difficult experience, something you're struggling with. And then you go on to the resource house where there's all these wonderful experiences. You know, the people see you, people da- are dancing with you. They're very kind people. And see what happens yeah. with the experience in that. And then step out. And then, you know, you, I tell people, 
you don't have to go into the other room full. As soon as your body feels okay, that's enough. That that's good. Mm-hmm. So just tune to the place, the space of no resources, and and start stepping towards that, mm-hmm. and then see. What is your relationship to that struggle, that challenge that that is in your life in that space? Yeah. And when you see the size, the difference, it it becomes a lot clearer. Yeah. And do you, um, I mean, do you suggest people to do that with somebody or can somebody practice that also on their own? Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm Yeah. Both, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you know, ultimately, anything you're doing with another person, you you want to be able to learn to do with yourself. Yeah. So, you know, how do you know when it's time to reach out to somebody else, whether it's a professional therapist yeah. or a, a friend who you can trust? Well, you you look to deal with something on your own. And if each time that you do, you sort of fall apart and disconnect and you sort of only come to a little while later, that's telling you uh, we get by with a little help from our friends. Yeah. I, I need to do this in in a trusting relationship. Mm-hmm. So, so we see that, you know, when I work with people, you know, and it's something that has become more important to me over the years is that to kind of do this psychoeducational stuff and also including the person's conscious mind as a really integral part of the work. Because, you know, me as a therapist, I'm rarely present with you. Mm. But you're there all the time. Yeah. So what does it mean to recognize these these trouble spots or recognize these trigger points and what does it mean to immediately take that as a cue that you go back into your safe space into your centered place into your resource place yeah and then it becomes much more an integrate uh integration and um yeah healing really the problem is as always in the relationship with something. Mm. You know, that's what like Viktor Frankl said, that's what Milton Erickson said. The pro- we, th- we tend to think, oh, the problem is in the experience, but it's not. Yeah. It's in the relationship to it. Yeah. So if, when, I'm, when I'm in the presence of that experience, it threatens me or shuts me down or disconnects me, and then I respond by trying to control it. That's the problem. Yeah. So how can I deal with these sort of ego challenges, these (laughs) ego threats, Mm. by using them as, as cues to center and open? That's, you know, I did mar- martial arts for 27 years, and um, partly to because to deal with all the violence from my alcoholic father in my family. Mm-hmm. And you know, I did Aikido for the for the last 17 years, and that's what Aikido is. 
it's it's becoming centered and moving out of harm's way and then never opposing the violence but looking to deactivate it that's what milton erickson's work was this whole sense of welcome you know it, it sort of gets into what does it mean to welcome the symptom what does it mean to welcome the obstacle yeah and it's a skill you know so it doesn't mean just flat-footedly saying okay do whatever yeah you, you can only do it if you're able to maintain your first commitment to a connection with yourself. Mm -hmm. That's training. Yeah. That's a training. And practice. Every day. Every day, exactly. Every day. Yeah. And and your problems are telling you where your practice needs to be. Your problems are telling you where your edge is that you're working on. Mm -hmm. And so you take this sort of gratitude towards them. Mm -hmm. There are always going to be problems in your life. They're mirrors of where your edge is. Yeah, there are these. As soon as you say, like what a tra trauma perpetrator would say, as soon as you attack yourself, I'm an idiot, I'm, an, I'm a coward, I'm stupid, I, why didn't this happen? Or or if you're you're primarily focused on, on blaming the other, there's no play, there's no creativity, there's no learning, there's no um, uh, generativity that's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in, in that, like you mentioned, the symptoms or, you know, maybe the, you know, the, the problems or the triggers, these are our teachers in a way. They are. That's, that's mm -hmm. it. And you realize, okay, and self-care and self-connection, I can only have a healing relationship with some other, some whatever it is, if I'm able to remain connected with me. Absolutely. So it's kind of like, you know, getting back to what we're talking about, about the some of the real strengths uh, that I see in somatic experiencing. Mm -hmm. It means that I only open myself to, to threatening people to the extent that I can stay connected with me. So in Aikido, there, there's a term called ma'ai, which means optimal distance. Mm -hmm. You know, where I'm far enough away that I'm out of harm's way, but I'm close enough to have the connection that allows some sort of shift to happen. And your my your optimal distance at one point may be far, far, far away. That's mm -hmm. that's what that's what the dissociation that you may have learned. That's what it was there for. It it was there to create a distance where you weren't destroyed by something. Yeah. Yeah, one of my one of my practices is, you know, in that um word connection, it's always like, well, connected to myself and connected to the other, or connected to the outside and connected to the inside. Um yeah. because if I'm only connected to me, then I'm shutting myself off. But if I'm only connected to the outside, then I'm not connected, then I'm I lose myself. Yeah. Right. So I think to to learn that 
both is possible and both is is needed. That's the thing about uh, you know generativity is that uh, the 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 basic relationship is the connection of opposites. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Niels Bohr, the one of the founders of quantum physics, all the way back in the twenties, a century ago, you know, used to say um, the there are two types of truth, and the shallow truth, the opposite of a true statement is false. Mm-hmm. And the deeper truth, the opposite of a true statement is equally true. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to another one, that Swiss guy, uh, Mr. Dr. Jung, he resurrected, he resurrected a number of terms from the Greeks. And uh, one of them was enantiodromia, which means not only does everything contain its opposite but everything like that yin yang symbol yes everything is becoming so my need for connection with myself rolls into my need for connection with others yeah which tucks back into my need for connection with myself mm-hmm. so it's that both and that is is the creative wholeness absolutely and I think then, you know, the the word polarity comes comes to my mind as well. Where, you know, I think I think in the world the polarity gets even bigger and bigger. And you know, when we can say like, "Hey, the, the both and it's not one or the other. It's just, you know, again, welcoming both <laughs> or seeing both and um, yeah. and not and not fighting one or the other, but just." Um, yeah, seeing seeing and appreciating different sides of things and learning from it. Yeah. Well, you know, in uh, complexity theory and chaos theory, um, when a system is going through deep transformation, it moves from sort of one value to this increasing um, progressions of bifurcations or polarities. Yes. And of course, you can see that happening now in almost every level yeah. uh, of of our community. And and if you just rea- are reacting in that, then things get worse and worse and worse. But this notion in chaos theory and complexity theory is that at these different points in it, it's possible to open up this space where the polarities actually integrate and create a new whole and i think we are in that probably you know more than at any other time in my lifetime and now i'm i'm not a spring chicken anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh interesting times for sure interesting times and we can see, I think everybody can feel, we as humans may not make it. Mm. You know, if, if we don't have this deep transformation, we, we won't. Because the thing I was talking about at the beginning about the left brain, the thing that the left brain is able to do that seems to be new on the whole planetary consciousness is 
we have a consciousness that can unbind from time or space. Mm -hmm. We can imagine and go anywhere and, and imagine anything and then be able to use that as our sort of our North Star. Yeah. So, you know, in the four billion years of the planet, basically things have been in the circle of life, you know, so things have not changed that fast you know, night and day and, and winter and summer and breathing in and breathing out. And and so you have that circuit of rhythm of the opposites. But now we've got this other brain that that can break that circuit. And and so if it operates without a feeling of connection to the earth or to the body or to each other or to the rhythms of consciousness it will destroy everything because mm -hmm. we have now you know i think it was two years ago some world science uh, organization officially declared we are now in the anthropocene era which means oh, wow. okay. on the planet <laughs> yeah it's what humans do that is most influential we have the power to we we have the most power of, of anything on the whole planet. Yeah. You know. And if we if we're doing that unconsciously and blindly and not in connection to the wholeness of life, we have the power. I mean, look at when we split the atom. Mm -hmm. What have we done with it? Primarily we're making nuclear bombs. Mm-hmm. You know, if we if we if that mind that split the atom was connected to the heart and the soul uh, of the world, we we would be doing much more than splitting atoms. But so we we need we need this deep transformational change, and we may not get there. Yeah, it's getting pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is hope. <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw the Dalai Lama about, I don't know, 10 years ago, and he was doing an interview, and it's one of those hard-hitting interviews where the the interviewer says, hello, Dolly, uh, <laughs> do, do you think we're going to make it? <laughs> and, of course, the, 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 the answer is, I don't know, but if we all pull together and sing Kumbaya... <laughs> And he said, it doesn't look like it. He <laughs> cynical. He just, yeah. It's very hard. I, I, I mean, the way he said it was just as resonant to me as what he was saying. Yeah. I saw in the interviewer, like what I felt like is, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> he says, well, don't you have hope? And, and he said again in that beautiful, wise heart mind way he said in my tradition we practice neither hope nor despair oh I, okay and he says well wouldn't it be terrible uh and he said yeah it would be a really terrible tragedy he said well how do you how do you handle that and then he said and I, it's one of those things where you see it or feel it and somebody you say Someday when I grow up, that's 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 what I want. I thank you for letting me know. Because I'm I'm gonna move towards that. I want to move towards that. He said, in my traditions, basically he said, 
we have seen universes come and universes go. Yeah, so it is. So in your universe, what are you excited for? What's coming? I'm, uh, I, I, you know, the last three years was, uh, I think, the greatest time of upheaval in my life. And I went, I grew up in San Francisco in the 60s. Mm -hmm. I was quarantined, so I had to be at home. And um, I really feel this connection, deeper connection to my heart mind. Yeah. And it's so beautiful and i realize this is so much deeper mm -hmm. than all these incessant problems that our head is always worried about yes mm -hmm. um i'm i'm really excited about this growing awareness that our true consciousness is not merely our ego or in many ways just if not more important not merely human Mm -hmm. that the the trees and the rivers and and the mountains um are are really our our, our core mind yeah right? and that if they're always there we're always inside of them you know yeah we're part of nature right yeah that's nature is our mother mm -hmm, exactly so i i usually meditate at least twice a day and here in san diego you can meditate outside most of the time. We've been having horrific storms for the last two weeks in California. But oh, wow. um, so I've been meditating, you know, on this question, who was I before humans were here? Mm. And then like feeling myself as a tree mm -hmm. or trees. And so be a really beautiful feeling. And I think it's what's calling us back home. Yeah. Can you repeat that question for everybody? I think that's beautiful. The question, the meditational question, contemplative question is, who was I before humans were here? Yeah. You know, it's sort of that there's the Zen koan, who were you before, who were you before your parents were born? Mm -hmm. so it's a sort of a takeoff on that. Or Virginia Satir used to ask couples, um, how did you fall in love together? What mm -hmm. was who were you before your marriage became a problem? Right. And who were you before trauma? Mm -hmm. A lot of people think I there was nothing before mm -hmm. my life of suffering. Mm -hmm. But but there is. Yeah, and then yeah. that sense of curiosity comes in again. And that sense of, I don't know if you call it wisdom, not not your wisdom, but the wisdom of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is a beautiful way to not end the conversation, but for now. <laughs> so draw a nice clothes. Exactly. <laughs> You know, like somatic experiencing, you open and then yeah. something comes into closure. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you again 
Stephen, for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and your presence, really. It's a pleasure, Andrina. Thanks. Bye. Bye. To get more of all that Stephen has to offer, I invite you to visit his website. You get the info on his trainings, on his workshops, you'll see his books. And of course, all the links are in the show notes for you to easily access them. And I thank Stephen again for his time, for his presence, for sharing all of what he shared so much. And I thank you, dear listener, for listening, for witnessing, and for being here. <laughs>